Welcome to the BOK Economics Podcast, brought to you by BOK Capital Management. BOK Capital Management is a 100% Black-owned, student-run hedge fund that focuses on exposing students to the field of active investment management. The purpose of the podcast is to enrich listeners from around the globe by highlighting the importance of economics. Economics provides a deeper insight into the events that are currently taking place in the world and helps us understand the decisions that have been made and their potential impacts. I think economics is important because it's one of the most overlooked social sciences that it affects every aspect of our daily lives. I believe that economics is important because of the insight that you can gain into consumer behavior. Economics allows you to contextualize the world. Be okay, economics. 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 As a disclaimer, all opinions discussed on this podcast are solely our opinions and do not reflect opinions of BLK Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used to make investment decisions. And we're live. Hello and welcome to the BLK Economics Podcast, the podcast where we aim to shine light on what's going on in the macro economy. My name is Devin Miles. My name is Elijah Osage. And my name is Amin Amari. Today we have our esteemed guest, Professor Dr. Bob Koopman, who is a former chief economist at the World Trade Organization and now devotes his time to being a distinguished practitioner at American University. Thank you for being here, Professor. Hi, Amin. Elijah, Devin, thanks. Good to be here. So if you would like to start us off, uh, could you please tell us the purpose of the World Trade Organization and your role as chief economist? Yeah, so the World Trade Organization is an organization focused on uh, improving multilateral cooperation around cross-border economic activity, international trade, um, including goods and services, but also things like intellectual property rights um, and investment. Um, My job there was mainly to be the chief economic advisor to the director general and to generate research data analysis on developments in global trade and what kind of impact that kind of uh, changes in global trade might be having on individual member countries. So uh, I think that's a reasonable summary. The overall objective really is to get uh, member countries to come together, talk about uh, their global trade challenges and how trade may help them with economic development. Thank you so much for that summary, sir. Uh, Could you please tell us what your career path looked like to become the chief economist? Yeah, so, you know, uh, as an undergraduate way back when in the 1970s, late 1970s, I took a course in Soviet economic systems and comparative economic systems. And it was very uh, enlightening for me to understand that there were different kinds of economic systems and that they performed differently. And, um, you know, different levers could be pulled and they, uh, cultures and uh, societies could be organized in different ways. That led me to want to follow up and understand that more. I went to graduate school and wrote my dissertation on... Uh, the Soviet Union's economy and the role of investment policy in Soviet economic development. And a big story there was um, investment in the Soviet economy was having less and less payback. It was um, it was taking more and more investment to get smaller and smaller amounts of output out of it. I then um, went to work for the U.S. government, helping them uh 
forecast Soviet agricultural trade with the United States, because at that point, the Soviet Union was a big net grain importer and a big agricultural importer. Um, and they weren't very open and transparent about what was happening in their in their production process and their crop progress and things like that. So they wanted help trying to figure out what might be going on there. Part of it was economics, and part of it was like looking at satellite images of little green pixels to see how the how the crops were advancing. Um, interesting thing was uh, at about that time there were significant reforms happening in the Soviet Union and to some extent Central and Eastern Europe. And then eventually we had the wall coming down and them opening up. And the expectation was that the Soviet Union and those countries would import even more agricultural products from us than they had in the past. And at that time, there were about a 45 million metric ton grain market, so a very important grain market for U.S. agricultural producers. Um, my research and analysis had suggested that when they opened up, they wouldn't be a bigger importer of grains, but that eventually they would become competitors in global grain markets with U.S. agriculture. This was not a very popular uh, economic insight within the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but it turned out to be true. And I was able to use my economics to understand simple basic supply and demand that in the Soviet Union, consumers, they, they were paid a reasonable amount of money. They didn't face high prices because the state controlled prices, but the state also controlled the availability of goods. So Soviet consumers had a fair amount of money. Food prices were cheap. Um, and consumer goods, back then they were like Sony Walkmans, right? You know, so not the not the phones of today, but uh, these little cassette players. They couldn't get things like cassette players, record players, you know, all these sort of modern color TVs, those kinds of things that we took for granted in the West. When they opened up, they would be able to buy those kinds of things and food prices would go up a lot. So most of my analysis was around how their consumption patterns would change. And at the same time, they get much more efficient at production and that their yields for crops and things like that would um, start to increase and uh, approach those that we saw in the West. You put that all together and it meant a big structural change um, in global agricultural markets. And, you know, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, and it was from understanding, you know, how society reacts when relative prices change and when producers are suddenly being no longer told what to produce but produce towards the market, you can see pretty dramatic changes. So it was a really interesting application of my economic learning from graduate school. Um, and it served me very well. I then went on to stay focused on international trade, not looking at the Soviet Union, and started to get involved in things like the North America Free Trade Agreement analysis and um, the Uruguay Round analysis, which was part of the WTO creation of the WTO. At the time, it was the GATT. Um, then I, I, I did some work with land-grant universities for a couple of years, helping them with their social science research and education programs and then missed the applied policy analysis. And then I shifted to a place called the U.S. International Trade Commission, 
where I became chief economist there. And then I became chief operating officer, and then I went on to the WTO. So that's my career in a, in a I don't know, what was that, seven or eight minutes? Wow, thank you so much. That was very comprehensive. We learned a lot. Uh, now, given you gave us your background on your career, how would you say your day-to-day deferred from the different roles that you described? Um, yeah, so you know, day-to-day, what I found was uh, I used my economics quite a bit, but a big part of what I needed to apply was um, understanding how to operate efficiently and effectively in different bureaucracies and in different cultures, right? So each organization I worked for had sort of a different institutional culture and different rules and regulations and people had different backgrounds. Um, And figuring out how best to navigate those and be able to apply my technical economic skills turned out to be important. So it wasn't just sort of the technical economic skills, it was also sort of the uh, sociological, non-technical, social skills that are pretty important when you uh, get into a job like this. Figure out how to work as a team. How to, you know, if you move into leadership, how do you engage your team and get them to contribute to leading and uh, coming up with new ideas and pushing pushing things forward. Um, you know, I. I I had plenty of bad bosses that wanted to tell me exactly what they wanted me to do. Um, I was more of the kind of boss who was like, you know, here's a bunch of things we need to do. What do you think you can do that's really going to help us answer these questions? Um, and I, thro- I, I think, did better in environments where they asked, hey, here's some things we need done. What do you think you can do? Um, then, hey, I want this done. Do it my way or, you know, find the highway. Um, hope that answered your question. Thank you. It really did. Uh, we'll go on to our next question with Elijah. Yeah. So um, just a question on kind of the current economy. Um, given global uncertainties, like what do you think the the change in trade is going to look like? Are you predicting a slowdown? And, and how does that kind of effect trickle down to your everyday consumer? What can our listeners expect to see out of this economy in the next, you know, six months? Yeah, very interesting question, Elijah. Um, so global trade during the pandemic essentially boomed. And most people heard about supply chain disruptions, right? Um, but many of those supply chain disruptions were at a level of trade and production and output uh, for tradable goods. These are you know commodities that are easily shipped across border that were at all-time near highs, right? If, if they weren't all-time highs, they were very near high. So, um, but people wanted even more. And that was because there was a big shift in consumption patterns in the pandemic. You no longer could go to uh, a musical event or to the theater or out to dinner. Uh, you were kind of locked in your house, right? Um, and Often what people wanted was, well, then I want a new TV or I want a new laptop or my job's requiring me to work from home. So I've got to buy all this stuff for my house or I've got more time now and I can undertake this project in my house. So I'm going to, or I'm spending so much time in my house. I want it to be better. Um, so there was this big compositional shift from the services sector, in-person services consumption to tradable goods. Um, 
at the same time, you know, it was hard to get uh, all the crew members needed to unload a ship in a port or even to staff a ship moving between ports. Um, so there were, uh, or getting enough people to come into a factory to produce as many goods as was demanded. So there was a big excess demand for certain kinds of goods. At the same time, there was a drop in demand for services. Um, and that surprised many people. Um, we saw it earlier in our, in our analysis at the WTO. Um, I thought it would pass pretty quickly. Uh, my original thinking was, well, you know, once people are feeling, you know, healthier, uh, none of the physical infrastructure was disrupted. So the physical stuff is there. And once people are back to work, they'll be able to adapt. But the system actually, even though all the physical infrastructure was there, couldn't um, swing back fully into action and meet that demand. Um, it started to mitigate here now recently. Um, as countries have opened up and people have been able to go back out to eat and travel and go on uh, holidays and things like that. Um, but it's still trying to absorb this big shift in economic activity that uh, it turns out really does depend on people. It's not just equipment. It's not just ports. It's people being able to um, make all those things function well. And some people have decided maybe they don't want to go back to work. Some people have been getting sick. Um, and all of that turns out to be very, very disruptive. And if you think about the recent holiday uh, problem that Southwest Airlines had, right? They, they, this big weather event, not, not a trade event, not a, not a pandemic. It was a big weather event was very disruptive to that airline because they hadn't adapted their technology uh, to operate under these kinds of circumstances. And their whole economic model just essentially froze up, <laughs> literally, I guess. Um, I find these kinds of questions very interesting, and it's a real challenge as an economist to realize that you know there's no one answer to what's happening in the economy. One has to open up their mind and really reflect on the different forces at play and try to understand them and then map them against um, what's happening in the real world. So back to your original question, trade has been pretty high. It grew really a lot in 2021 and 2022. I think I don't think it's going to decline in 2023, It's, but it's not going to grow as fast. And hopefully as we get um, through these pandemic challenges and the recovery, although now we have new, uh, new challenges in China, um, things will stabilize and we'll be back on a path of relatively slow but steady growth. Um, so I don't see... Deglobalization. I see sort of a stabilization of globalization at a, at a fairly high level, but there's also going to be a reorganization of it. So, Elijah, I think one of the big things we've seen since the Trump administration was, you know, countries getting much more aggressive in their bilateral trade policy. And the thing is, is, you know, I think many policymakers believe that, well, if I put tariffs on products from China, we'll stop buying as much from China and all that 
all that uh, all those products will be made in the U.S. That's not how trade works. Uh, do you know the game whack-a-mole? Right. You know, um, it's sort of like that. You start whacking imports from China, but then it pops up from Vietnam or India or Mexico. It pops up from somewhere else. Uh, it doesn't necessarily come back to the United States. And if it does come back to the United States, it's likely to be highly automated, um, any of that kind of production. So it's going to use more machines and it's going to require people who know how to program and and uh, use those machines rather than, you know, somebody turning a wrench on a production line, which is what the, the stories were in the 1980s and early 1990s. So, you know, the world is always changing and it's, it's hard to keep up with that. But some of those basic principles, I think, are, are valuable insights as we go forward. So I don't see much reshoring in the United States. I see a reorganization of globalization with the world being less focused on importing products from China, and we have more diverse sources of uh, both exporting and importing out there. Thank you so much for that insight. And Dr. Kubin, I have one question for you, because you did mention the demand surge that we experienced during the pandemic. And one of the things that was evident of that was the supply chain issues that we had of 2020 and 2021. But recently there was an article that came out via CNBC, and they say that 61% of supply chain managers still say that their supply chains are not in normal conditions. And given the fact that we kind of stepped out from the pandemic, what do you think might be the biggest reason for the continuation of the supply chain issues? So I think a big part of it, so there was health and health policy elements around COVID, but I mentioned the Trump administration with its trade policies, and now we have the Biden administration with the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. They've put sanctions on, um, well, they've prevented exports of semiconductor manufacturing equipment and high-end chips to China. Um, and then we also see uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, lots of sanctions being put in place there. So we had policy uncertainty. In an organization like the WTO, by the way, its job on cross-border commercial activity is to reduce policy uncertainty. You know what's going to happen. It's not free trade. It's freer trade, more certain trade. So you, if you're a business, you know what the rules are going to be. Well, particularly under the Trump administration, their view was, we're going to ignore that. We're going to try to increase. We're going to try to make it really uncertain for businesses that want to work in certain parts of the world. And then you add Russia, Ukraine on top of that, and then you add the Biden administration's new policies, and suddenly firms are sitting there saying, man, I don't know. You know, I, I used to have a pretty good understanding of how to set up my supply chains, but between policy uncertainty, COVID and health-related policy uncertainties, and now economic sanctions on Russia, Ukraine, and now the Biden administration trying to, I think, appropriately change the energy structure of the U.S. economy and maybe enhance investment in R&D in um, information technology. But there are elements in those policies that basically say, if you're a Korean automobile manufacturer and you source your electric battery components from China, we're not going to give you a subsidy on that import. That's against WTO rules, right? And so Korea is like, 
you know, where do I, how do I do this? What do I do with my supply chains? If you're Apple, do I continue to use China as a production base or do I start shifting to India or, you know, um, some other region of the world where I'll have more policy certainty and won't be subjected to these kinds of disruptions in my supply chains? So they have lots of different forces suddenly have really burst um, to the front. And I think if I were a, a supply chain manager for a major multinational or even for a small firm that I'm sourcing my inputs from or my product from China, I'd be pretty concerned that uh, I don't know what's going to happen in the next year. And if there's anything businesses don't like, it's uncertainty. No, that's a very thorough answer. And another thing that we have been focusing on here in the States is the Fed and they their continuation to hike rates. And I just wanted to know, what impact does the rate hiking have on global trade, if it does have an effect? Well, the main way that the rate hike is going to affect trade um, is through the exchange rate, right? So the dollar's gotten really strong because the Fed's paying higher interest rates and people are like, hey, if I put my money in U.S. dollar bonds um, and I need dollars to buy those bonds, I'm going to make four or 5%. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going uh, to buy U.S. dollars. But that means that you know, a Boeing airplane is now much more expensive uh, to Ethiopian Airlines if they want to buy Boeing airplanes, right? They've, they've got a, now their currency takes a lot more of their currency to get the dollars to buy that Boeing airplane. Um, so I think it's mainly through exchange rates that, uh, that the Fed interest rates are affecting um, uh, U.S. current account trade balance. It does have some effect on investment, right? So it will have an effect on investment and consumption demand. It will slow demand. And since we tend to spend some of our money on imported goods, um, it likely will slow the uh, demand for imported goods as investment and consumption demand declines. On the other hand, our dollar will go further in buying those imported goods. So that's a less direct effect. Right. And given that the dollar is now seeing some downward pressure, do you think that may continue going into 2023? Depends on what other countries do. Well, it depends on many things, right? It depends on how crazy Congress is, right? So if if Congress, uh, certain parties in Congress decide that we don't want to uh, fund our deficit or pay our bills, you know, then everything goes out the door and the value of the dollar could crash pretty significantly. Um, but it also depends on what's happening with the European Central Bank, uh, other other banks, what are they paying for interest rates um, in, relative to the U.S.? So I, you know, I, I would not make a living trying to do exchange rate arbitrage, that's for sure. Um, I think it's a highly um, uncertain period in terms of where interest rates and exchange rates are going to go. But right now, the U.S. is still viewed as perhaps one of the safest havens. Uh, It's got high interest rates. So I, you know, the dollar's weakened here in the last couple of days, but I'd be surprised if that was sustained. Right. And I want to shift a little bit. 
we're talking about a safe haven. I want to go over to a riskier currency or country, China. We see that they are now exiting from their zero COVID strategy. And that's something that has been surfacing the news as of recently. And with them being said, and they're known to be the uh, factory of the world, they're the largest exporter. What outlook would you have for China going into 2023? Well, China already had a long-term strategy of trying to um, produce more um, for domestic consumption. Um, China is a very interesting case. It's uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing development story. But they also face some pretty significant adjustment challenges. They've had a lot of easy growth over the last twenty or thirty years, and now it's getting to the point where growth is much more difficult because they're near the technological frontier, right? Um, so they've got this dual circulation policy where. Increasingly, they want to meet domestic demand through domestic production. They want to be less reliant on exports. Keeping in mind, many people think that China was an export-led growth um, policy uh, approach, but really it was investment-led. So China invested a lot. They were able to use the rest of the world market to make productive use of that investment by being able to tap into demand outside of their domestic economy. But now they're approaching middle income. They want more of their domestic market served by their domestic firms. That upsets many WTO members, by the way. It's sort of like, you know, we opened our markets to you. Now that you're getting rich, you ought to open your markets to us, right? Um, So, The big challenge for China is going to be spurring domestic household consumption. And that is not a guaranteed thing. They don't have very good safety nets. It's very expensive to send your kid to college. It's very expensive to buy a house. Medical care can be very expensive. They don't have a very good safety net. So many households keep a large amount of savings compared to the U.S. or Europe. Um, So trying to spur domestic consumption in Chinese households is a big challenge for the Chinese government, but it's one they've got to make um, because if you keep relying on investment and building out factories and airports and bridges and stuff like that, at some point it gets very uneconomic. I was mentioning the Soviet Union having to make bigger and bigger increases in investment to get smaller and smaller increases in output. That's where China is now. So China has to somehow get their households much more involved in buying goods. And then the question is, how much of those goods that those households start buying more of, goods and services, is generated domestically versus internationally? And that's a big question that WTO members are very interested in seeing the answer to. So far, China's pretty specific. We're going to try to supply our own market. I hope I answered your question. No, you definitely did. That was a lot of information that we gathered through the last three to five questions. I hope everybody out there is taking notes, but we're going to sort of shifted the conversation into something that's more digestible, some more fun questions. And I want to go over to Amin because I know you were saving one up from earlier. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for the conversation, uh, doctor. And I was just wondering, you know, with all these professional roles and all the research that you do and all the frontiers that you're a part of, how did you decompress from this job, which is purely stressful, 
<laughs> I am laughing about that one because uh, I think by the time I left that job, I was pretty burned out. Um, uh, I, I had an amazing experience, particularly when Ngozi arrived, right? Um, I don't know if you know Ngozi and Iwiala. Um, she's Nigerian-American and was at the World Bank for many years. And she was the first African chosen to be director general of the WTO. Um, and she's a dynamo. And she, you know, she's fantastic. Um and she just works all the time. And that meant I also had to work all the time. And she's older than me, but I think she has better stamina than I do because um, I had reached 65, uh, which is a mandatory retirement age for the WTO. Um, and I'd been working at the WTO for six and a half years before she arrived. And uh, I was pretty busy during those six and a half years. And then she came and hit the ground running. And, you know, I, I, it was great working with her. I think I helped her a lot, but it was time for somebody else to come in. I had two grandkids here in the U.S. I'd been outside of the States for eight years and my kids were getting older and I wanted to kind of come back and um, slow down a little bit, work with students. I love students. In Geneva, I also taught at the Graduate Institute. So I was chief economist at the WTO, but I taught at the Graduate Institute one course a semester. And I just, I, I, I really wanted to be able to you know, not deal with all the politics of the WTO, um, take my expertise and help, um, help a next generation figure out if this was an area that they were interested in. And if so, how can I help them uh, move forward in, in a career path in that direction and then slow time, slow down and spend more time with the wife, the kids, and most importantly, the grandkids who were just here for the last, last few days. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And if I was in that job, uh, I wouldn't have been able to uh, spend this kind of time with them. I, just before this call, I was talking to my replacement at the WTO. Uh, it takes up the post on the 4th. And, you know, uh, his name is Ralph Ossa. He's a professor at the University of Zurich. He's a really, really brilliant guy. Um, and, you know, somebody fresh coming in, ready to hit the ground running, taking that organization forward, I think, is, is the right thing. And me shifting into a little bit different, uh, different mode, still intellectually interested in these things, but um, I'm no longer on point for having the answer uh, in 30 seconds. Uh, so, slowing down a bit. Yeah, no, that sounds great. It sounds like it was a smooth transition, and I'm happy that you, I mean, get to do things that you enjoy now. Um, I know we have many young listeners on this podcast, and you're probably very versed to giving advice um, with your grandkids and, and, and things like that. So I think um, one question I would ask is, um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self today if, if you had the chance to go back? You know, What's a piece of advice you would give yourself? Talk to my professors. I never did. So if I was in college, get to know them, stop by. Um, be intellectual. I was always intellectually curious. And, uh, actually, one of the things I'm proudest of of my academic career was I never missed a class, I, I, except I missed, I think, 
three days in graduate school because I had a, a, a health issue where I was hospitalized. But once I was out, I was right back in class. But I really didn't talk to professors and I didn't take advantage of um, getting to know, well, based on their experience, you know, where do they see things and how do they see the world evolving? And then the other thing I would say is it's not just academia, but also learn these other social skills that turned out to be so important for me. Um, you know, I was very focused on just book learning and classroom learning and didn't think about what does it mean to uh, get into a workplace and work with people and be part of a team. And I, I, my first job was at eight years old working for my father. So I, I'd worked a lot, but I'd never stopped to think about what does it mean. Um, and man, if it's going to be something, so I, I've done this for 40 years. If, if you're going to do something, you've got to have a level of passion for it. And, but you've also got to like the people that you're working with. Um, and, and it's not just on them, it's also on you, right? So how do you, how do you find that balance? So I think my 20-year-old self would be go talk to some professors and realize that you're not just learning stuff. You're learning stuff to try to make a positive difference every day with the people that you work with and ideally um, with the community around you. That's, That's a very wise answer. That's something that I never really took into consideration. Joining the professors, making sure that we're staying up to date with them. That's something that I'm going to make sure I put into play next semester. And I do just want to ask one last question. Um, we do have some avid readers who listen to the podcast. You yourself, do you have any book recommendations that you would recommend to the audience? Yeah. Um, if I'd known that question was coming, I'd, I'd have looked them up. But um, if you want to know more about China, there is a, a professor at Tsinghua University School of Finance. His name is Michael Pettis, P-E-T-T-I-S. And I highly recommend you look for some books that he's put out. Um, I don't know. I don't have their titles on the top. I read these things and I don't remember the titles. Right. Um, but uh, if you want to know more about China, I think that's a, that's a great, uh, a great uh, book to read. And then there's a guy by the name of Brad DeLong, D-E-L-O-N-G. And he's written a book on, uh, I think it's the title Slouching Toward Utopia. And it's sort of a long journey view of economic development in a very layman friendly terms. Um, and I, I think those are two good ones, very substantially deep in the challenges of where China is and the other one sort of big picture um, economic development kinds of challenges. Thank you for that. That's great. Do you write yourself? I write short pieces and academic papers, and I've got to get into uh, writing more op-ed pieces. But uh, right now, I've been focused on getting my uh, my teaching stood up and engaging with my students and focusing on family. And all that's going well, by the way. Oh, can I – one other piece of advice. As a student, um, when you approach a professor, don't make it all about the grade. Make it about the topic, Right. Grading is the thing I hate the most. I'd rather not grade 
anything. I'd rather engage intellectually with my students. Um, and at some level, grades don't matter. What matters is what you've learned and how you apply it. That being said, you got to get good enough grades to be able to, to go forward, right? But if you're just focused on the grade, um, I think you might be missing out on some of the more valuable stuff in the class. Um, anyway, it's reflections of, a, of an old professor. No, that's great to hear. I mean, I ask just because um, I want to make sure that the audience can keep up with you and keep keep in contact with you. You know, read any academic. I'm on Twitter. Have I'm on Twitter. R. B. Koopman. Um, yeah, at R. B. Koopman. I haven't posted much recently because, as I said, I've been focused on these other things. But people are getting on me to to do it. I'm giving a paper here in the next uh, few days in New Orleans at the American Economics Association. So. Um, I'll probably post something on that 